Welcome to this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, where I feature a few minutes from the most listened to episodes of 2021 from a variety of industry experts. You will hear from a two-part interview with John Gorman of Nightingale Partners on investing in healthcare properties in opportunity zones, another two-part episode from Robin Farman-Farmain on the new healthcare economy, and from Dr. Leif Dahlin, a former anesthesiologist that now promotes building wealth through passive real estate investing. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Episode 37, Healthcare Investments and Opportunity Zones. This was actually Cory Booker's program that was designed to spur investment in disadvantaged urban communities. And when the IRS revised those regs, Tricia, they said not only can Opportunity Zone capital now be used not just for real estate purchases, but more importantly, for our purposes, leases, but then working capital or to meet the business requirements of a new co in one of the 9,000 Opportunity Zones around the country, That's what made me slap my forehead and said, here's a new source of $6.2 trillion in available capital. I mean, so one, it dwarfed the impact bonds I've been chasing my tail for three years chasing. And two, there were so few restrictions on the use of this capital that it just opened the gates to us to, to come in and do this. Today, I welcome John Gorman, founder and chairman of Nightingale Partners, the first Opportunity Zone fund to invest in social determinants of health interventions with health insurers, local government, and provider organizations. Over the next two episodes, he shares his background that began with a career in Washington and during the Clinton administration focused on healthcare policy for the medically underserved and Medicare and Medicaid managed programs. He shares his experience with providing healthcare services to the poor and how he is using the Opportunity Zone funding to put investors and payers together to provide healthcare to the vulnerable populations. John, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Trisha. It's a thrill to be here. Never talked to a group like this before, so I'm very excited to be with you guys. And that's interesting because what you do is related to both the target audiences, the providers, as well as you know the investors. And you're doing the investing side yourself, so it's it's very targeted. Yeah, absolutely. I am looking forward to this interview because I believe I do believe that maybe naively, but I, I do believe that many people want to figure out how to provide healthcare services to those that, that most need it. Um, but the billion dollar question is, how do you fund it? Well, that's certainly been our focus here at, at Nightingale Partners, Tricia. There is a lot of capital and resources that are out there to uh, help improve the availability of healthcare services, especially in underserved communities. We're the only opportunity zone fund 
that I'm aware of that uh, is specifically de- dedicated to large-scale healthcare investments, and in particular, in investments in social determinants of health, or you know, those are basically just four fancy words for poverty. Mm-hmm. So uh, our focus is really in working with large provider systems and health insurers for uh, large-scale uh, interventions in in effect, anti-poverty initiatives. So, you know, housing security projects, food security projects, making prenatal care and well baby care better available to women of color who are, you know, dying at four to six times the rate of white women in childbirth these days during the pandemic, things of that sort. Because we know from all the available research that every dollar that we invest in intervening and improving poor people's health care yields a three to eight X return on investment uh, in terms of reduced healthcare costs. So as an investor, you know, it doesn't get much better uh, than sinking money into, uh, you know, basic human needs interventions because they're, they're just so hugely impactful in terms of what we spend on healthcare in this country. Well, and, you know, your current company, Nightingale Partners, comes from a tremendous amount of experience in managed care and serving vulnerable populations. So in order for the listeners to understand, you know, how you came to this and your incredible level of experience, can you provide them with your background? Uh, Yeah, sure. Well, I was uh, born to two uh, med students at Wayne State Med School in Detroit, Michigan. So, you know, being raised by two primary care docs in an inner city I think brings a pretty unique perspective all to itself. And when I came to DC 30 years ago, uh, straight out of school to work for my hometown congressman from Detroit, John Conyers, he walked into my office and said, and this was in 1989, 90, said that he really wanted the the Congressional Black Caucus, which he was the dean to be uh, really active in pushing for single payer health care. And, uh, and he said, and this has got to be a priority. I'm the dean of the Black Caucus, so my chief of staff has got to be the face guy on this. And he said, so you're doing health care. And I said, <laughs> Congressman, I don't know about health care. And he said, John, from 18 years of dinner table conversation, you probably forgotten more, of us, more about health care than the rest of us are ever going to learn. So I got just thrown right into it. A year later, I was running Clinton's campaign in Michigan, and then when he won... I got appointed to this new Office of Managed Care at what was then the Healthcare Financing Administration, Tricia, which is now, of course, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. It is actually the biggest agency in the federal government by far, even bigger than the Pentagon uh, in terms of its budget in controlling Medicare and Medicaid. So we ran the managed care office. So that was all the Medicare risk plans and then all the Medicaid HMOs. So I was 25 years old and had a $79 billion portfolio. I mean, that only happens in D.C. Episode 38, Healthcare Investments and Opportunity Zones. I also take heart in watching all of these clinic startups with the huge success and trajectory that that like Oak Street or Iora or ChenMed or Cano Health or most importantly, Village MD and the billion-dollar partnership they just struck in May with Walgreens, you know, they're going to roll out five to 700 new senior-focused clinics in these underserved communities around the Walgreens stores. I mean, I think there's going to be a huge uh, effort and 
billions of dollars invested in the next couple of years just in trying to address medical underservice and trying to bring those resources into the communities that need them most. The thing I get a little worried about is, you know, we've already got a a primary care shortage in this country among physicians. I think what you're going to see is uh, a big effort as well to help allied health professionals practice at the top of their license. One example we're seeing right now, you know, as I said, I serve on the board of Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. And for instance, we just made a major investment in pop-up acute respiratory distress clinics across Metro Detroit as just an off-taker of folks who would otherwise be coming to our overcrowded emergency rooms uh, when they have COVID symptoms or they think they have COVID symptoms. So literally sending out pop-up clinics where we'll have respiratory therapists and others on site to divert them away from nursing homes that are 99% capacity. That's a really smart innovation in place-based healthcare that addresses a pressing access need. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that kind of stuff. I think right now with nursing homes just absolutely inundated with COVID and overwhelmed, uh, I mean, look, nursing homes are about to get gutted like a fish in this country. I mean, that is the one institution. Nobody wants to be in it and nobody wants to pay for it. And now it's crawling with COVID. So I think you're gonna see huge place-based investments, Tricia. I think you're gonna see an explosion in small group homes, uh, taking single or double family uh, housing and converting them into small group homes for elders, uh, for the housing insecure and for the disabled with say an onsite community health worker to help coordinate their services. I think you're going to see an explosion in adult and child daycare, especially adult daycare. I mean, I don't know if, uh, I think I'm probably a lot older than you are, but in my day, you know, in the late 60s, there was a kindergarten or a child care center on every freaking corner in Detroit. I think you're going to start to see adult daycare centers popping up like mushrooms. And I think you're going to see a whole lot more emphasis on community-based and home-based settings So a lot more emphasis on home modifications so that we can help seniors and the disabled stay in their homes longer, safely, and a whole lot more emphasis around housing and and rental and utility supports, you know, especially when the the eviction moratorium is set to expire on January 1, and we're looking at potentially 8 to 12 million people being evicted in first quarter, you know, a, a real Marshall plan around how do we keep people in their homes safely longer I think is going to be a big priority. Well, and I, and I think some some people that are in nursing homes would have preferred to have some sense of independence, but sure. have support as well. But you've touched on um, the pandemic effect of nursing homes, but also do you feel that, and you might be getting calls already of, of you know, the pandemic has uncovered a huge gap in healthcare awareness, prevention, and services in lower income communities. I mean, I think the statistics show that that they are being hit the hardest, and that's not, not a secret. Your payers and providers, health systems, are they saying, hey, you know, we need to, you know, there's likely to be another pandemic. How do we get ahead of the curve? And, you know, coming to you, would, would that be a solution? That's certainly a solution. Episode 44, Innovative Technologies in the New Healthcare Economy. So I'll give you two examples. 
Viz.ai, this is so cool. It's the first company that has gotten uh, this special reimbursement from Medicare. So what this does is it looks for LVO strokes, which is a very specific, very damaging type of stroke. And minutes count, literally seconds count when someone presents in the emergency room with an LVO stroke. And so Viz.ai is software that's used with the imaging, it's imaging analysis, and it is able to pick up LVO better than a human being. So it now, if you use this in the ER on the suspected stroke patient, uh, you're reimbursed $1,040 now. Wow. So this is a technology that improves the patient's life, right? Could save their life and is being reimbursed and being reimbursed at a pretty high level. You know, $1,000 to use the software is, is pretty good. In the next few weeks of episodes, I interview Robin Farman Farmain, a keynote public speaker and entrepreneur that has invested in several healthcare technology startup companies. Through her own personal health journey and work with cutting-edge technologies, she sees innovations coming to the medical office space that are and will change healthcare delivery and care. She is a professional coach and has written several books, the most recent on becoming a thought leader. Next week, we discuss how private practice physicians can use different marketing techniques to compete in the new healthcare economy. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am so excited to be here today. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited for this interview. You know, I, I want to introduce you accurately to the audience because, you know, I could say you're a health technology expert. I could say you're an entrepreneur. I could say you're a public speaker, but I know you encompass a lot more. So how do you define yourself? I call myself a professional speaker and entrepreneur, uh, but yes, I've built up a crazy different uh, ecosystem where I can have multiple revenue streams from different, different skill sets of mine. What started you on the path of exploring how technology can help clinicians provide more efficient or effective treatments for the patients? Well, in my day job, I do high-level business development or help uh, with product on early-stage pharmaceutical med device and AI software programs, and all of these are really helping the patient. Now, the reason I chose to go into things like working on curing cancer or treating sleep apnea, which is a $10 billion industry, is because of my background. So at the age of 16, I was misdiagnosed with an autoimmune disease. By the time I was 26, I'd had 43 hospitalizations six major surgeries and three organs removed for that misdiagnosis. And uh, I was on high dose methadone. And I went to my doctors and I'm like, I don't think this drug is doing anything. I need to be off of this now. I think there's something else wrong. And they said, well, you know, next step could be to surgically implant a morphine pump into your spine. I was like, are you kidding? I was 26 years old. I was essentially a shut-in. So I went home that night, fired my entire healthcare team, took myself off some of the methadone, which is pretty significant uh, opioid withdrawal. I ended up getting diagnosed correctly when I rebuilt my team of physicians with Crohn's disease, was put on a medication called Remicade, and I went into remission within 24 hours. At that point, it had been a 13-year battle, and I had spent two or three years as a shut-in because I was just in such a significant pain. Wow. So a personal journey personal journey. And I, I made it my life's goal to impact 100 million patients worldwide because I believe in paying it back by paying it forward. I know I am alive today, not just because of that one doctor who ended up diagnosing me correctly and putting me on the right medication, but 
pharmaceutical, med device, software companies, EMRs, hospitals, clinics, doctors, nurses. I know they all had a part in my living through that 13 years. And so I can't pay them all back. So I believe in paying it back by paying it forward. That's great. Well, can you share some examples of um, the technology-based healthcare delivery innovations that you speak about um, that are already in the marketplace or that you expect to expand or coming to the market in the near future or something you know that might be available in several years further in the future? So one of the things that is really helping lift up the shift in healthcare delivery, shifting where the patient gets their care from the hospital or clinic into their own home is of course, not just telemedicine, but telemedicine tools. I'm talking clinical grade remote diagnostic devices or clinical grade wearable technology. So of course, you're probably familiar that the iPhone is FDA cleared for their EKG single lead monitor, which can pick up, of course, AFib. But there are a lot of other devices besides just the Apple Watch. We now are looking at continuous glucose monitors that can monitor the glucose levels in interstitial body fluid. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, inpatients in their home environment. We see things like Tidocare, Tidocare, which is widely available in Best Buy. It's an Israeli company launched in Best Buy a couple of years ago now, about $300. And they have outfitted not only patients' homes, but lots of different places that have just a nurse on staff, maybe like a school or a sports arena. And what it is, is it's four clinical grade medical devices otoscope, which looks in the ear, stethoscope, temperature monitor, and tongue depressor. And those clinical grade applicators attach to a video camera. So what you do is you call a physician through the app and they're partnered with American Well, Amwell, which of course is one of the largest of the telemedicines. And the doctor walks you through using these four clinical grade devices on yourself or stay on your child. Episode 45, Innovative Technologies in the New Healthcare Economy. And that helps with lead generating for their main revenue stream, because all of us have one main revenue stream and theirs is probably doing, you know, seeing patients. Right. Let me tell you about a friend of mine who's an anesthesiologist and, you know, anesthesiologists are one of the top uh, paid specialties. Mm -hmm. And so he works full time doing that, but he also does online courses and he started in um, medical school, uh, potential medical school students teaching them what they need to do when they're undergrad and how to take the MCATs, how to study for it, how to get into medical school, how to survive medical school. And so he makes more money on his side project than as an anesthesiologist. And he's making a lot of money as an anesthesiologist, (laughs) right? And so he has a lot of different revenue streams because once he has a product, he's teaching college students how to get into medical school and how to survive that part of their life, all of a sudden he has a product that he can package in a million different ways. Because let me tell you, in today's economy, people don't pay for content, they pay for packaging. This week's episode is part two of my interview with Robin Farman Farmain. This week's episode is the second half of a two-part episode with her. Last week, we touched on cutting edge technologies in the medical space that are changing healthcare delivery and care. This week, we focus on how private practice physicians can use different marketing methods and become a thought leader in their field to use for lead generation and awareness in the new healthcare economy. Robin shares with us examples of how physicians can set themselves apart as healthcare consumerism increases. 
Please join me next week for an interview with Dr. Jonathan Johnson, a physician in Washington, D.C. that specializes in wound care and his two private practices. So we're looking at all this technology coming on board. We're looking at practices having to be really customer service oriented. So for private practice physicians, you know, they are entrepreneurs, but I'm not sure some of them have started creating brands, but some of them are going to need to in the new healthcare economy. So you have a book called The Thought Leader Formula. I want to move into that and see how we can relate that to the future of healthcare delivery. So you know, I think we've mentioned that healthcare consumerism is here. Patients are going to shop treatments and procedures moving forward, and they're going to try to reduce their out-of-pocket costs, which means physicians and practices will need to market themselves as they will not always be able to rely on payer networks or insurance contracts to drive patients because if the insurance isn't going to pay for it anyway, then, you know, the insurance doesn't matter. So can you share an example of where a patient, you know, should shop a treatment or procedure? If they're they're saying, hey, I need to find a practice that does this. And then they go and try to Google it. And, you know, and then whichever practice advertises it better is likely to get eyeballs. Not only that, but there's that new rule. And I think it's federal too, but in California where hospitals and clinics need to post their prices on their most common things. Right. And so it turns out, so I mentioned I'm on Remicade, which is an IV infusion. I get eight times a year. Now, I was getting it in a hospital and uh, down the street, and I downloaded the prices, and they charge $28,000 per infusion just for the medication. I moved it into my home six years ago using a national company called Option Care, which actually covers about 90% of the alternate site infusion clinics. And this is a, this is a really big growth area, so listen to this story carefully. I moved it into the home, and it's just a full-service pharmacy. They ship the medication to my home the, the week before. They deploy the nurse. She mixes it on site like a pharmacist, and then she administers the, uh, the IV. They charge $1,200 for the medication. $28,000, and I have to go to a hospital where I'm surrounded by 14 other patients in a giant, extremely loud, noisy room with blasting televisions and sit there for five hours and pay $28,000 for medication. Or I can be at home, chilling out in my bedroom, watching TV, have a primary care nurse, essentially, one-on-one -on -one treatment for five hours. And I don't ever get exposed to any type of infectious disease because, of course, whenever you go anywhere that people are sick, you're being exposed to infectious disease. Right. Now, I'm small. This is a medication that is actually based on weight, and I'm about 90 pounds, so I'm getting a very small dose. My nurse has someone who gets a dose four times bigger than mine, oh. which means every time that he gets his Remicade, if he was getting it at that hospital... They would be charging close to $100,000 eight times a year. This is where people go bankrupt and then they can't afford, mm -hmm. they can't actually afford care. Yep. Not only that, but I mean, this is a 25-year-old drug, <laughs> right? <laughs> like uh, there's biosimilars out there. This is not like, obviously it's not Janssen. J&J &J are putting up the prices. They are actually reimbursing me my copay now. And if Amazing. they are selling it to option care for such a low price that they only have to charge $1,200 to actually make enough money on me as a patient, then you know that the um, there are hospitals that are really just, you know, charging $95,000 too much per, yeah. per infusion. And the thing is, is now patients are getting smarter to this because 
hospitals and clinics do need to post all of these prices. Right. And so those of us with large copays, when I was getting it done in the hospital, my copay was $1,000 each time. I had to spend $8,000 a year. Now I spend $100. I now spend $800 total for the entire year. Episode 75, Passive Real Estate Investing Leads Anesthesiologist to Fire. I do know physicians that that have done that. Um, you know, on the surgical side, it tends to be surgeons buying into a surgical center where they practice. And on the you know, clinic physician side, it may, you know, maybe more of, uh, you know, buying the office space and, and then owning the building and, and renting out to others. As you said, um, the benefit obviously is that if all goes well, you know, you're, you're sort of double dipping, you're getting, um, a not free, but you're, you're, you're you know, you own your office space or you're not paying rent, you're collecting rent from others. Uh, and as long as your practices do well, then, then all is well, and you can make great money doing that. In today's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, I interview Dr. Leif Dahlin. He is formerly an anesthesiologist, and we discuss physician burnout in general and the complexity of practicing medicine that drove his mission to retire early and invest in real estate to lead him to financial independence. He teaches this FIRE concept to other physicians and can be found at physicianonfire.com. Leaf, welcome to the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to be here. Uh, so you are a physician, former anesthesiologist, um, on a mission to teach the FIRE concept, which is financial independence, retire early on your blog, uh, Physician on Fire. So what made you start the, on this mission? You know, I, uh, I didn't have any plans to retire, especially early, um, I guess, if you asked me 10 years ago when I would retire, I figured, well, I'll be an empty nester in my early to mid 50s and then maybe go work some locum tenens, which is how I started my career. And, and, uh, but about five or six years ago now, I, uh, discovered this concept of financial independence and read about people that were retiring early and figured out what the, the math behind it was and added up our investments and realized that lo and behold, we were in a pretty good position to retire anytime. Um, I was basically financially independent then. This was about 10 years, not quite 10 years into my career. I was 39 and I wasn't ready to retire right then and there, but it got me thinking about the possibilities and what life might look like if I wasn't working anymore. And after crunching the numbers eight different ways, I approached my wife and said, you know, um, I bet you'd like to get back to Northern Michigan, which is where she's from. And there wasn't any work here after a, a hospital I used to work at went, went bankrupt. Um, uh, so we had left uh, a number of years earlier and, and lived and worked in uh, South Dakota and then Minnesota, which is my home state. Um, and that ended up being my best job. But um, long story short, after a year of kind of making plans, coming up with about a five-year plan, to exit from my anesthesia career, I realized that anyone that was writing about the FIRE movement, this financial independence idea, for the most part was writing from a very frugal uh, point of view, how you can save as much as possible by spending uh, very little. And I knew that message wouldn't really jive with my physician colleagues. And it wasn't exactly what we were doing either, even though I feel like we were quite frugal compared to a lot of our physician peers. Um, but I approached it from more of a, you know, 
live the way you want to, save a good amount of money, be intentional with the way you spend, but you can even, you know, you might be able to spend a low six-figure amount each year, 100000 a year, or maybe more depending on where you are and how much you earn and all that, uh, and make work optional. And so, you know, seeing how physicians are burning out, and I see a lot of people trying to spend their way out of their misery, and that rarely works, you know. So I just thought uh, more physicians um, like me who were previously unaware should, should become aware of, of uh, you know, what the possibilities are if you actually save your money, invest it sensibly, and get to a position of financial independence. Well, uh, let's talk about burnout for a second. Um, you know, you, you say you're t- um, there's a quote that uh, you have here. We're talking about physician burnout brought on by increasing bureaucracy, increasing hours and expectation, dec- decreasing time with patients, pay for performance, unfair rating systems, et cetera. Um, and it wouldn't be tough to come up with a list of 101 ways a physician's life can be made more stressful. Yeah. So in your opinion, you know, what is, if you could start by addressing physician burnout, what is the first thing in all of that? I mean, there's a lot in there that you'd have to unpack, but what do you think the first change would be to make an impact to reduce physician, physician burnout? And maybe it's not one, but what is kind of the primary focus to start down the, you know, yeah, that's taking that onion, peeling that onion away. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I, I wish I had all the answers. Um, you know, well, most of the solutions that are offered to us as individual physicians uh, start with the individual, but uh, clearly the, the true solution uh, needs to come uh, from my, you know, a higher, more broad standpoint. So I think, I think it starts with, you know, administration realizing, uh, you know, the, demands that are put on physicians from so many different angles and having them work to make our lives easier, uh, not more difficult. So, you know, I think in a lot of places, administration and physicians just clash and they, they feel like they're enemies and administration won't have a job if they don't have people to care for patients. So they should look for ways to, to make physicians' lives easier. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.